0: You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Advent series, Love Came Down, a look at the meaning and message of Christmas. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. We are currently in the season of Advent. Advent is the four weeks leading up to Christmas, and it's a time when Christians have historically, traditionally, focused their hearts and their minds, their attention on the coming of Jesus into the world, And what that means for us. Uh, For the season of Advent here at Whitefields, we're doing a special series called Love Came Down. And each week, what that means is we're looking at the story of Jesus' coming at Christmas, that very first Christmas, and the implications that it has for us, and what it means for our lives. So this morning, our reading comes from Matthew chapter 2. If you'd please read along with me. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. By the way, if you need a Bible, we'll get you one. Just put your hand in the air, or you can follow along. We encourage you to use, if you're using an app, to use the YouVersion Bible app. We've got live notes in there for you. Let's read Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? <clears throat> for we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I too may go and worship him. Verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is in search of the child to destroy him. And he rose, Joseph rose, and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. That was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this message of Christmas, this message that you have come to us. Lord, we pray this morning as we study, Lord, that we would come to know you, we would reflect on you as king, and that we would consider what that means for our lives. What does it mean for us that you are king, and how will we respond to that? So Lord, we ask that as we study your word today, that you'd enlighten the minds of our hearts, Lord, that you'd give us insight to understand your word, that we might understand what these scriptures are saying, and also what they mean for us. Lord, would you help us to apply these things to our lives? We don't just want to be hearers of your word, we want to be doers of it as well. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the things that makes Christmas feel like Christmas is all the special music that we hear at Christmas time. Uh, you know, all the different songs that are sung and the, the songs that we sing in church or even Christmas carols that we sing on the street. But, you know, sometimes I wonder how, how close these songs actually reflect reality. For example, there's this song that says, you know, Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. Maybe you know that song. But, you know, I don't want to be a Scrooge or anything. But is it really the most wonderful time of the year? I mean, have you ever seen like summertime? Because that's a pretty great time of the year. I mean, like summer, 90 degrees, sun, sun stays out to like 9 p.m. That's pretty awesome. Springtime's pretty great. Even the fall is really nice. Are you sure this is the, the most wonderful time of the year? I mean, like I said, I don't want to be a, a Scrooge or anything, but the days are short. There's snow on the ground. There can be a, a fair amount of stress that goes along with Christmas, especially if you've got a difficult family situation, and if that's the case, Christmas is actually a pretty tough time of the year. I think, though, that the, the, song, the Christmas song that irks me the most as being inaccurate is probably Silent Night, right? So Silent Night is this song that's about how, you know, when Jesus is born, it's just characterized by peace and quiet, and everybody's happy and smiling and everything. Now, I don't know if the person who wrote this song has ever been around babies or if they know how babies work, but I have been around babies, and I got to tell you this, it's not very silent, and it's not very peaceful, and there's not a whole lot of sleeping that goes on, and uh, it's kind of like when you ask somebody how they slept, and they say, oh, I slept like a baby. I just want to say, oh, really, does that mean you woke up every hour crying, and then you wet the bed? Because that's how babies actually sleep, right? So, um, for those of you who have seen a baby born, you know it's, let's put it this way, it's beautiful, but it's certainly not pretty. Like, it's actually, there's a lot of blood, and it's kind of gross, and it's, it's kind of scary, right? It's, it's also fairly risky, both for the mother and for the baby. Until, you know, recent times, uh, mothers and babies died fairly regularly in the process of childbirth. The rates of death at childbirth were very high, both for the mother and the child. That's why most people give birth in hospitals. So when you think about the birth of Jesus, realize it was anything but quiet and peaceful. To make matters worse, Jesus was born in a stable, which in those days was most likely kind of hewn into a rock. So it would be kind of a cave. It would be half exposed. So you'd be kind of halfway outside, halfway inside. Just basic shelter. And it certainly wasn't very sanitary. I mean, you know what happens in stables. It was not sanitary at all. It wasn't the way that any mother would choose to bring a child into this world. Now you can imagine that night, try to imagine it, really put yourself there, try and imagine trying to clean up the blood, Trying to imagine trying to keep the baby warm, try to imagine Joseph trying to tend to Mary while trying to take care of the baby and trying to help Mary recover. She's probably not feeling good at all. Furthermore, the song, Silent Night, it ends with this line, Jesus, Lord at thy birth. But if you just read the story which we just read, Um, it would probably be more accurate, rather than to say, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth, it'd be more accurate to say, Jesus, fugitive, at thy birth. Because really, that's what happened. The Christmas story is the story, and that's what makes it so incredible. It's the story of the incarnation, which means it's the story of how God, when the Almighty God took on human flesh, He became one of us in order to redeem us. The Almighty God, Lord and Creator of heaven and earth, entered into our darkness he submitted himself to weakness he was born as a helpless baby and for some reason he chose to enter the world through the trauma through the pain of childbirth furthermore he was born into poverty he was born to peasants his mother was a teenage girl his father was a a basic carpenter why why would he choose this and that's what's really incredible about this it was all intentional I mean, think about this. We just read this story about how God aligns the stars so that astronomers will see this sign that a king has been born. So God is able to align the stars. Don't you think that a God who can align the stars is also able to arrange for there to be at least one room open at an inn there in town so he doesn't have to be born in a stable? Of course he could have done that. Couldn't he have arranged, if he can align the stars, couldn't he have arranged to be born in a little bit more well-to-do family? Absolutely he could have, but that's exactly the point. The God who, who can align the stars chose to be born in these conditions. Now, why would he do that? The Bible tells us why, actually. It tells us in Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He became poor in order to give us wealth. The Bible describes that wealth in this way. It is imperishable, it is undefiled, it is unfading, and it is kept in heaven for you. In our text here, we see actually three different responses to Jesus' coming. And each of these responses correspond directly to Responses that people also have today that are very common for people to have today as regards the coming of Jesus and Jesus as king. So the the question that it begs of us to answer is this. How will you respond to Jesus? How will you respond to Jesus' coming? How will you respond to Jesus as king? The title of today's message is, There's a New King in Town. And here are the three responses that we see Here in our text. First of all, we're going to see resisting the king. Secondly, we're going to talk about worshiping the king. And thirdly, we're going to talk about journeying with the king. So let's go ahead and begin. Talk about resisting the king. Matthew tells us that around the time of the birth of Jesus, he tells us this story that wise men from eastern lands came to Jerusalem because they had seen a sign in the stars that a king had been born and they wanted to come and pay homage to this newborn king. Now, when these wise men came to Jerusalem, the first thing they did, they went to the palace of the king at the time, which was King Herod the Great. Now, Herod, this requires a little bit of understanding about what was going on with Herod. Herod and his family were not part of the Jewish ruling family, right? Like, they had a ruling dynasty in Israel. That was the family of David, and Herod was not a member of that family. In fact, Herod was not even Jewish fully he might have been partly Jewish but he was not his uh, he was not really Jewish so you got to ask the question how does a person who's not part of the Jewish ruling family who's not even fully Jewish how does that person come to be called the king of Israel well the answer is this he was appointed by the Romans when the Romans came in and took over Palestine And the Romans were very worried about Jewish nationalism. They were worried about Jewish nationalism creating a kind of uprising amongst the people to resist the Roman occupation and to work for Jewish autonomy. And so they wanted to make sure that they put in a ruler who would be a puppet of Rome and who wouldn't be swayed by Jewish nationalism. So Herod was an Idumean. So Idumeans, they were a small nation, a small people group who lived in Palestine or in Israel in other words uh, well in other parts of the Bible they're referred to as Edomites so if you're wondering where the Idumeans come from well that's just another name for the Edomites who are the descendants of Esau okay so one of the reasons the Romans chose him of course was precisely because he was not Jewish they wanted to make sure that whoever was in charge would not encourage Jewish nationalism and independence from Rome now for the Jewish people the fact that Herod held the title king of Israel, it was a slap in the face. It was completely offensive because here's the thing, they had a ruling family. They had a dynasty and Herod was not part of it. And in their minds, it was completely illegitimate for them to call Herod the king of Israel. You can call him a governor, you can call him a president, you can call him whatever you want, but don't call him a king. That's incredibly insulting. So they considered Herod to be an illegitimate king, an imposter. Someone who did not have their best interests in mind, but who actually helped the Roman occupiers oppress them and subjugate them. So Herod was not at all liked by the Jewish people. He was resented, and the only reason that Herod was able to stay in power was because he had the backing of the Roman army. And so here comes this delegation from the east, this, these wise men, and they come to the palace, and they say, hey, we saw a sign in the stars that a new king has been born. Where is he? Now, probably their assumption was that Herod, as the king of Israel, had had a son. And so they come in and they say, hey, congratulations on the birth of your son. It must have been an extremely awkward moment because Herod's like, I didn't have a son. And they're like, well, that's weird because we saw a sign in the stars that said that a new king had been born in Israel. So if it wasn't your son, then super awkward, right? So it says that Herod was disturbed. Now, that's a huge understatement. Of course, he was disturbed. Herod was not a nice person. What we do know about Herod from ancient historians, they tell us that he was a particularly violent ruler. He was very paranoid about other people trying to take away his power. He actually had several members of his own cabinet, his own government killed. And he even had some of his own family members killed because he felt that they posed a threat to his authority and his rule politically. So you can imagine that a man like Herod, who's paranoid about losing his power, he, he hears that a child has been born who is the actual rightful king of Israel. Now he's prepared to do whatever it takes to ensure that he stays in power. So what he does is he calls together the, the scribes and the priests, that tells us there in the text, and he asks them, what do the Hebrew Scriptures say? And they said, well, the Hebrew Scriptures promised that one day God would send a king. This king would be a descendant of David and he would liberate the people and he would establish God's kingdom forever. And according to the prophecies, this Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, which is a small town not very far away from Jerusalem. So Herod already knows what he's got to do. He has to kill this child. He has to kill him soon because if word gets out that this child's been born, he'll have a problem on his hands and he's got to kill him because this is posing a threat to him as king. But for now, we see that Herod plays it cool and after he finds out where Jesus is, he says, you guys go and uh, you find Jesus and then you come back to me and you tell me where he's at because I want to go and worship him too. Now, of course, that's not what he wanted to do and uh, the wise men catch on to this because they have this they're tipped off by God that this is what's happening so they go they find Jesus but then they leave and they go home another way when Herod realizes that he's been tricked that they didn't come back and they didn't tell him where Jesus is at he does something terrible he does something unthinkable something that's even hard to imagine he orders all the baby boys in Bethlehem aged two and under to be killed now Bethlehem was a small town and what we know about populations at that time We can kind of do the math. There were probably somewhere around 20 to 30 baby boys who were killed in this massacre. That's absolutely devastating. It must have been devastating to those families. It must have been absolutely devastating to that community to have an atrocity like this committed to their children. But the sad news about this is that something like this wouldn't have even made the news in those days. It was all too common, especially for rulers, to try to get rid of people who posed a threat to their rule and jesus would have been killed too except that god had warned joseph in a dream about what was going to happen he told him you need to get out of town right away because herod's troops are going to show up so jesus here's what i want you to see not only was he a fugitive but jesus became a refugee interesting story right but the question is like with many other stories in the bible i mean i don't want to put it crassly but why does it matter who cares Right, okay, and, and I am gonna answer that question just so you know. Why is this story important? Why is it even recorded? Because here's the thing, there are a lot of things that happen in Jesus' life that are not written down for us in the Gospels. Even John, the Gospel writer, tells us that much. He says, hey, there are so many things that happen in Jesus' life that are not written down here, which means that what is written down here was specifically chosen because it served a purpose, and that purpose was to tell us everything we need to know about who Jesus is and what he came to do. So the question is, why did Matthew choose to share this story with us? And what does this story tell us about Jesus and the meaning of his coming? Well, first of all, it tells us that Jesus came to be a king. It tells us that Jesus came to be a king. You know, one of the most common things that you hear people say about Jesus is, well, you know, Jesus was a good teacher. I'm sure he was a a good man who did good things, and, you know, uh, but I'm not sure that he was any more than that. But here's the thing Matthew wants to point out to us right here at the beginning with this story. If Jesus was only a good teacher of wisdom and morality, then why did Herod feel the need to kill him? Because here's the thing, nobody's threatened by a nice guy. Nobody wants to kill somebody because they're a teacher of wisdom and morality. Nobody's threatened by that. Now think about this. If someone would have come up to Herod and said, Herod, I need to tell you something. A child has been born in Bethlehem, and when he grows up, he's gonna be a super nice guy. Like, he's gonna be really great, and people are gonna love him, and he's gonna go around, and he's gonna encourage people to live upstanding lives of morality, and he's gonna share nuggets of wisdom with people. He's gonna be really great. What would Herod have said? Would he have said, we need to kill that baby? No, of course not. He would have said, oh, great, awesome, who cares, uh, good for him. But Herod, was not, that wasn't his reaction. In fact, he was so disturbed by the news of Jesus' birth that he tried to kill him when he was just an infant, before Jesus had taught anything, before Jesus had done anything. And what that tells us is this, that it wasn't just what Jesus did that made Herod want to kill him. It was who Jesus was that Herod understood. That was why he wanted to kill him. Clearly Jesus must have been more than just a teacher of wisdom and morality. Clearly he must have been more than just another nice guy if someone wanted to kill him when he was a baby. The reason Herod wanted to kill Jesus was because he understood this fundamental truth about who Jesus was, that Jesus came to be king. Now not only does this story remind us that Jesus came to be a king, secondly this story is here because Herod's reaction to Jesus is a picture of of how many of us react to Jesus as king. I'll say that again. Herod's reaction to Jesus is a picture of how many of us react to Jesus as king. Now, if you want to be king, or you fancy yourself a king, and someone else comes up and says that they're the king, then you're gonna have a conflict with that person because one of you has to give in. The throne is only big enough for one of you to sit on it. And at the, in every human heart, we could put it this way, there is a little King Herod. There's a little King Herod who wants to be in charge, who wants to be in control, who wants to be your own master. In Romans chapter eight, Paul tells us that the human mind in its natural state, he says it is at enmity with God. It does not want to submit to God as master or as ruler. Within each and every person, there's an impulse that says, no one is gonna tell me what to do. I'm cool with God giving me advice, I'm okay with Jesus being a good teacher and a nice guy and even my friend. But at the end of the day, nobody tells me what to do. I am the king of my castle. I might choose to do some of the things that God says or not, but I'll be the one to determine that. No one tells me what to do. So Herod's reaction to Jesus as king is a picture of how many of us react to the idea of Jesus as king. Within all of us, there's a little King Herod who is threatened by Jesus as king because if he's king, that means that we have to give up our place on the throne. And so there can be this tendency within all of us to resist the king just as Herod resisted the king. Now maybe there are some of you who would say, yeah, that's me. You know, I recognize that tendency within myself. I I recently read a quote from a philosopher named Thomas Nagel Uh, who happens to be an atheist, and he was talking about his atheism and just being very honest about, you know, what's really behind it. So this is the words of Thomas Nagel, philosopher who's also an atheist, speaking about his atheism. Here's what he says. He says, "'I want atheism to be true. It makes me very uneasy that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. You see, it isn't that I just don't believe in God.' I actually hope that there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And catch this, he says, and my guess is that my my cosmic authority problem is not unique to me. A cosmic authority problem. That's what he says is really at the root of his desire for there not to be a God. That's interesting. He, He says, I don't want there to be a God because if there is a God, that has implications for my life and how I live. And you see, that's really true. If Jesus is more than just a good teacher, if he really is the son of God, come to us to be our king, you know what that means for us? It means this, we have lost the right to be in charge of our own lives. If he really is God, come to us. If he really is the king, then we have lost the right to be in charge of our own lives. And that is exactly what the story here in Matthew chapter two is telling us. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, the story of Jesus in the gospels is the story of how God became king. The story of Jesus is the story of how God became king. So what does that mean for us? Well, if Jesus really is God, come to be our king. What that means for us is this, you can't just like him. You can't just be fond of him. You can't just find him to be somewhat inspiring for your life. I mean, starting here with Herod and and throughout the rest of Jesus' life, the people who met Jesus They always had very strong reactions to him. Some people, like Herod, they were threatened by Jesus. Other people were furious with Jesus. Other people, on the other hand, had a very opposite but also extreme reaction. They knelt before him. They worshipped him. They left everything to follow him. But nobody was indifferent about him. Nobody was indifferent. Nobody simply liked him or found him somewhat inspiring for their life. You see, if this baby born in Bethlehem is who the Bible says he is, if he is God, if he is God come to be our king, then here's the implication for us. You must serve him completely. It means that you do not have the right to rule over your own life. And there, were, there, were those, there will always be those like Herod, like Thomas Nagel, who say, I don't want to serve you. I want to be my own king, but here's the thing. The person who says, I want to be my own king, you will never be truly free until you let him be your king. Look at Herod. He's the king, but he knows and everybody knows that he's illegitimate, that he's a fraud, that he's a fake, that he sits on a throne of lies. Everybody knows it. He himself knows it. And Herod, even though he has the title and the, throne and the crown of king, he's not free He's held captive by fear that someday someone is going to come along and take away his position, his authority, the thing that means the most to him in life, it means so much to him that he's even willing to kill his own family members, even willing to kill babies. Herod would have said, The only thing I need in life to be happy is to be king. And here he is. He's king. And is he happy? I don't think so. I mean,. I generally take it as a rule that happy people don't kill babies. So I'm going to say he's not happy. He's obviously paranoid. He's afraid. He's a captive to fear. And so Herod is, and and guess what? Herod is going to continue on being the pretender king of Israel for a few years. He will resist Jesus as king. But as we read in our text, after a few years, Herod died. You know, Jesus said something very profound, which is worth all of us considering in regard to our own lives. This is what Jesus said. He said, what does it benefit a person if they gain the whole world and yet lose their own soul? Is anything worth giving in exchange for your soul? Herod got to remain king, but at what price, at what cost? Who cares about being king when you're dead, right? And the same is true for us. You can be like Herod and you can resist Jesus and you can say to God, I will not have you rule over me. I am the king of my own castle. But at what cost? Is it worth losing your soul over? Because again, who cares about being king when you're dead? This life is pretty short and and if Jesus is who the Bible says he is, then he has every right to be your king and to sit on the throne of your life. So to resist him, is to live like Herod, a slave of your own creation, giving your soul in exchange for the illusion that you are in control. So that's one response that we see in this text uh, that people commonly have, resisting the king. The next response that we see here in our text is that whereas Herod resisted the king, the wise men worshiped the king. So that brings us to the next point, worshiping the king. Now how many of you have heard the song, right, that you've heard the song about we three kings, or you've heard that there are three wise men who came to visit Jesus. I want you to look at the text again if you've got your Bible open. Notice anywhere in the text where it says that there were three of them? It's not there. We don't actually know how many of them there were. Now, the reason we think there's three of them is because there were three gifts that were given. But, you know, who knows? Maybe there were like four, and one guy just brought a card or something, right? Like a, you know, we don't know. So there were three gifts. Now, who exactly were these people Well, it says that they were wise men. Now, what exactly is a wise man? You've you've probably also heard them referred to as magi. The term magi is a Greek term, which is plural for magicians. Literally in Greek, they're called magicians from the East. Now, the reason we don't call them magicians usually is because a magi is something a little bit different than what we tend to think of when we think of magic and magicians. A magi was a sage, right? A person who studied the stars astronomy and they pursued wisdom and knowledge really the the most common way we would think of this is a scholar like a a person who's an academic these were the academics and the scholars the educated class of their day most likely they're from Persia and they were well read in the sciences they were well read about uh, other cultures and the stars and so as they're studying astronomy they see this sign in the stars which indicated to them that a king had been born which is what led them to come to Jerusalem. Now, what's most interesting to me is that uh, when they come to Herod, they say that they want to meet this newborn king, but why do they want to meet him? I find this really interesting. They want to worship him. Now, that's interesting, right? Because these are the very first people who come to worship Jesus, and they're not Jewish people. They, they supposedly, you know, we can assume that they worship foreign gods, some different religion. They don't know the God of Israel. They don't worship the God of Israel. It's kind of weird, actually, that these people who aren't Jewish are the first people who come and they worship the Jewish king. Now, somehow, they must have understood something about this king, Jesus, that he was more than just an earthly ruler who came to be, who, who needed to be honored, that he was, in fact, divine and therefore worthy to be worshipped not only by the Jews, but by them too, who were not even Jews, that he was divine and he was even God over them. What's even more interesting is when you look at the three gifts that the wise men brought to Jesus. First of all, they gave him gold, which is nice. That's like the, the uncle who gives you, you know, cash for your birthday, right? Like, hey kid, happy birthday, here's a 20. Everybody loves that uncle. So gold, we know what gold does, we know what it's for, but it's really the other two gifts that are interesting. Um, Frankincense and myrrh. So both frankincense and myrrh are resins, which are made from dried tree sap, and they're they're not quite as glamorous as gold, but they're both very rare and they're very expensive in their own right because they're made from a specific tree, which only grows in the Horn of Africa and in uh, part of the Arabian Peninsula, and so they're expensive and everything. But here's what they were used for. Frankincense was an incense that was used mostly in religious ceremonies, including in the Jewish temple. Myrrh, on the other hand, was an ointment that was used for treating wounds, but its main use was that it was used in the burial process to prepare dead bodies for burial, which is, uh, you know, kind of weird thing to give to a baby, don't you think? Right? Like, that's not something you can pick up at Babies R Us. Uh, it's not something you usually bring to the baby shower as a gift. Kind of like, uh, here you go, you know, moms open up the gifts of the baby shower, some onesies, that's nice, right, and uh, and a baby changing mat, that's cool, and a gift card to buy some diapers, great, oh, and some embalming fluid, that's uh, helpful, maybe, but also very inappropriate, like, thanks, I guess. And uh, why would these wise men give Jesus some incense, it's like some religious ceremonial incense, and some embalming fluid that's used to prepare dead bodies. Did they actually know something about this king and what he had come to do? Well, did they perhaps understand that this king had come in order to die and that his death would actually have religious, spiritual significance? I don't know if they understood that much or not. But several years after this, at the climax of his life, Jesus, rather than ascending a throne, he ascended a cross. He came to substitute himself in place of us, to bear the evil, the sin, the suffering, and the death, and all the consequences of us turning away from God so that he he could reconcile us to himself. And through him, God could end evil without ending us. The response of these wise men to the king, rather than resist him, they came and they worshiped him. And there's a, a way in which The gifts which they gave speak also to what it looks like for us to honor and worship Jesus as king in our lives too. Think about it. They gave him gold. One of the ways that we honor and worship Jesus in our lives is by honoring him with how we use our financial resources. They gave him frankincense. Frankincense was used in the temple and it was a symbol of prayer ascending to God which created a sweet smelling aroma to God when it rose to him. So another way that we honor and worship Jesus as king is through prayer and through gathering for corporate worship like we are now. Then they gave him myrrh, which which speaks of death, really. One of the ways that we honor and worship Jesus as our king is by dying to ourselves and giving our lives to him, saying, Lord, you gave your life for me, and the only right response is for me to give my life for you. That is my act of worship. As Paul says in Romans chapter 12, he says, I I will live my life as a living sacrifice because you are my king and my God. So may I encourage you to respond to Jesus in these ways as they did these three symbols, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and what they speak of because of who he is and what he's done for you. But yet there's one last response. See, I think about the wise men and it still leaves me feeling a little bit uneasy. And here's why. Because they came and they worshiped And then they left. Now, I don't know, uh, probably they had families back home and they had stuff to attend to. And it's very likely that when they returned back to wherever they were from, they took this news of this divine king who had been born and how he was to be worshipped and they took that to their homeland and they told people there about it. But still, this is the last we see of them. Like they came to church on Christmas Eve and that was it. Like they didn't show up again. So I think there's one more reaction that we see in this text which is really the best reaction of all, and it's the only one which is truly fitting of Jesus as king, and that is journeying with the king. For Joseph and Mary, think about what the coming of Jesus into their lives meant for them. It disrupted everything. I mean, think about this. As a young couple, they probably had all kinds of plans for what they wanted to do with their lives. They probably had all kinds of plans for where they wanted to go, what they wanted to accomplish, what their life together would look like. And then one night, a messenger from God shows up And everything gets flipped on its head. Joseph's now told, Hey, you got to flee town. You got this small baby, but now you got to get out of town because there's troops coming and they are coming to kill Jesus. So Joseph, in that moment, has to pick up, leave everything behind, and get out of town that night and flee the country and all the way to Egypt. Now, we know at this time there was a large Jewish community in Alexandria, mostly made up of dissidents people who had left fled israel because of the rule of herod because he was such a terrible ruler so joseph and mary became refugees now this is what jesus coming into their lives looked like for mary and joseph they lost everything they've given up now everything whatever plans and dreams they had of their own they've had to set them all aside and they've now going somewhere they never planned on going and doing things they never thought they would ever have to do and that isn't even the end of it we read that after a few years in Egypt, they get word that King Herod has died, and so Joseph's told in a dream to return to Israel, but not to go to the, the part of Israel where he's from. He's from the southern part of Israel. He's from the tribe of Judah, which is southern Israel. He's told to go live in the north of Israel, which is really considered kind of the backwoods, right? Like the other side of the tracks, the bad part of Israel. So he's told to go up leave this part of Israel where he's from and go to a place where he never really planned on ever going before. You know, one of the things that I remember thinking when I was considering becoming a Christian, I said to myself, you know, I'm interested in being a Christian, but only if it means that I can still do this or still do that, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. Or, you know, you hear people say this sometimes. I'm interested in being a Christian, but only if it means that I don't have to do this or I don't have to do that, right? In other words, what what somebody's doing when they say that, and I think it's very common, what they're saying really is, I want Jesus, but I want him on my terms. I want Jesus, but I still want to be the one in charge. I still want to be the captain of the ship. I still want to steer things. I still want to decide what my life will look like. The problem is, you can't do that if Jesus is your king. And Jesus came to be king. He didn't come to be your sidekick. He didn't come to be your advisor who gives you some recommendations that you can take them or not. No, to receive Jesus as your king means like Joseph. He comes into your life and when he does that, he gives a whole new agenda. It might mean a whole new course for your life. Joseph is a great example of the best response to Jesus' as king. He doesn't resist the king, and he not only worships the king, but he goes one step further. He journeys with the king. He lets the king set the agenda for the rest of his life. And at the end of his life, I'm sure if you would have talked to Joseph about how much Jesus had changed the course of his life, I'm sure he would have said, you know, he took me places that I never would have gone if it was just up to me. But in the end, it made my life richer and more wonderful than anything I could have ever created for myself. Now let me tell you, friends, that same thing will be true of you. The story of Christmas is the story of how God became king. So the question for us is this. How will you react to Jesus as king? How will you respond? Will you resist him like Herod? Will you worship him like the wise men? Or will you go all the way like Joseph, and will you journey with him? when you really see this king for who he is, a king who traded his throne for a cross, who traded a crown of glory for a crown of thorns, all for you, gave his life so that you could live forever, the only fitting reaction is to journey with him and to worship him with your whole life. So I encourage you to do that today. Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us Thank you, Jesus, that you are the hero of this story and what you have done for us is truly great. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to see the greatness of what you have done and to see the hope and the glory of the gospel. Lord, I pray that as we leave this place that we truly leave with the Christmas spirit, that spirit of Joseph saying, Lord, not only will I worship you, but I will let you set the agenda for all of my life from this day forward. Be my king. I realize that that's the only way I can be truly free. Lord, we ask today that you would be our King. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Advent series, Love Came Down, a look at the meaning and message of Christmas. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.